Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, your work author Privet, and this is the Reading Women Podcast, where we are reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women, and this is episode 16, where we are discussing Moon Over Manifest and Esperanza Rising more in depth. Welcome. Hello, Kendra. Hello, Autumn. These are some good books we're talking about today. Yes, I am really excited, and we've pretty much discussed them in the pre-podcast, so, you know... Hopefully we will sound more intelligent when we're actually, you know, hitting the record button. So, yes, and when we're not having like side notes about our children, you know, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So as we mentioned in the last podcast, we decided to start out the year with some middle readers because some of our listeners had mentioned that they had younger children that they were interested in getting book recommendations for, and we were like, why not? Let's just start out the year with some middle readers. It'll be a fun easy way to ease ourselves into the year while we are crying over all the wonderful, beautiful new books that are coming out and wishing we had them already. Um. (laughs) Very true. And middle reader is actually one of my favorite genres. So I am super excited to talk about all of the books. Am I going first? Yes. Yay. I get to go first. Okay. So the book that I am talking about is Moon Over Manifest by Claire Vanderpool. And this was actually her debut novel, and it won the Newbery. Can you believe that? Wow. I know, right? She's actually... Talk about surprise. Yeah, I mean, and now that I know that, I didn't know that before I read it, and now that I've read it, and now that I know that, I'm like, oh my goodness, she's so talented. It's hard to come out of the gate and have an award winner. Her next book is equally as amazing, so... What's her next book? Uh... Now that I've said that, I don't even remember. Something Rising rising Early? Was oh, it Navigating called? Early. Thank you. You're welcome. So she's really cool. She lives in Wichita, Kansas. And so this book, Moon Over Manifest, I am going to give a brief overview before we talk about it. Um, I'm going to read the blurb, part of the blurb from Goodreads. Abilene Tucker feels abandoned. Her father has put her on a train, sending her off to live with an old friend for the summer while he works a railroad job. Armed with only a few possessions and her list of universals, Abilene jumps off the train and manifests Kansas, aiming to learn about the boy her father once loves, once was. Having heard stories about Manifest, Abilene is disappointed to find that it's just a dried-up, worn-out town. But her disappointment quickly turns into excitement when she discovers a hidden cigar box full of mementos, including some old letters that mention a spy known as the Rattler. So, from there, um, it so she kind of sets out at that point to find out who her father, like who her father is, because he grew up. Or he spent some of his adolescence in the town, and she's disturbed by the fact that nobody mentions her father, Gideon. Um, So she's like, how could a person have lived here and no one knows anything about him? And then also she's kind of struggling with why did he leave me behind and who am I? And she's turning, I think she's either 12 or 13. I don't remember anymore if it specifies. Uh, So she's kind of on this precipice of her life changing and not being a child anymore. So I think one of the easiest ways to kind of jump into talking about the book is, well, I think first we need to talk about the structure. And I mentioned this in the last podcast, but I'm going to review it again just to make sure that um, 
we're all on the same page. It is in an epistolary style, so each chapter has a heading with a date and a title. But that would be epistolary, wouldn't it? The Is he reading a letter, right? Maybe it's a mix, because it's like, there's a column, so there's a section where it's present day, and then there's parts that are letters. That would be part epistolary. I mean, it's basically flashbacks in epistolary form. This is true. This is true. And that's kind of what makes it interesting. So the style is like, so it's her present day, and then we have, as Kendra aptly put it, these flashbacks in the forms of letters that she finds in the cigar box in this the house of this friend of her dad's named Shady. And then there's also newspaper clippings from the Manifest newspaper. So these three things combine together to tell the whole story. So it's actually a really unique way to tell a story. And it really does lend atmosphere to what's going on. And imagine like, if you read this when you were middle reader age, that the form would be really novel and be really cool. Oh, yeah, because it's not like once upon a time and then it follows it straight to the end. It definitely jumps back and forth. And even I had to, you know, it's not comp- it's not convoluted, but you do kind of, if you're not a careful reader, you can forget like what the dates are or what time period you're in. So and It's sort of like a mystery. Like you don't know what's going to happen at the end. And then you're trying to figure out like, you know, okay, so her dad has to be one of these characters. Who is her dad? And so it's cool too, because there's parts of the story where uh, Abilene will make a guess about what she thinks happened. And then on the very next page is a newspaper clipping from the manifest newspaper. And it describes exactly what happened. And so it it is kind of like a mystery in that in that way in that you you're kind of discovering with her who her father is and why nobody's talking about him apart from that another way i think to kind of uh, talk about some of the the themes in the book is a major theme is friendship so there's several several friendships in there we have letty and ruthann who are cousins and they befriend abilene and they help her as they help her decipher the clues and uh, they point her to people in the town to talk to, trying to figure out who the rattler is, um, who is this mysterious character who's mentioned in these letters that she finds. And so they really befriend her at this time when she's brand new to the town and she really has no friends. And they're persistent, like she's kind of mean to them at the beginning and they're then through their persistence and their friendship, she really forms this relationship with them. Then we also have Miss Sadie, who is a gypsy and she tells fortunes and she has this, she, she develops a friendship of sorts with Abilene. And then, but she has a really interesting relationship with a character named, a secondary character named Sister Soletta. And she teaches at the Catholic school in town so you kind of have so they're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum you have this really devoutly religious woman and then this woman who more of deal, uh, works in the realms of mysticism and they end up becoming partners like helping the townspeople heal and become better people and so it's like they have the same goal but they approach it from different angles which I thought that was one of that was one of my favorite friendships in the whole book and then we have 
Ned and Jinx, and they are the two people who are mentioned in the letters, the flashback letters. And Jinx comes to town, and he befriends Ned, and then Ned ends up going off to the war. Do we know what war it is that they go off to? It would have been, what, if it was 18, it would have been World War One. Oh, that's true. Huh, I didn't make that connection when I was reading it. So, yeah, so then Jinx kind of helps Ned enlist into the war, and then, so we kind of flesh out that relationship. And then we have this Shady, his his name is just Shady, and he, he's, I like him too, he runs the church slash saloon, um, and he... That's a lovely combination. I, I know, it's so weird. It's like super weird. And... He is Gideon's friend, and he ends up taking in um, Abilene and helping her. And even though he's kind of her guardian at this point, um, he we don't really know a lot about him. Like, he is a shady character in a lot of ways, and Abilene doesn't really trust him throughout most of the story. And then Miss Sadie tells her these stories about the past, and a series of visions and through that we kind of get his whole backstory and so it is like as I'm describing it I'm realizing that there are a lot of things going on in this book and the plot kind of weaves in and out and in and out but I thought it was a, a very well told story and it covers a wide selection of topics as far as like oh that's a, another huge part of the book is the fact that manifest is made up almost solely of immigrant families. So it touches on topics of immigration and racism and classism and um, all kinds of topics like that. So if you read this book with your kids, it will bring up a lot of different things that you can have really good conversations with them about. And I really liked how it had two different parts of history. You have like, you know, the early, you know, the, the teens where his World War One, but also the second part is the Great Depression. And um, I remember uh, my mom would go through and she would take chunks of history. So we read a lot about the Great Depression and we read, I forget what story it is about, but the, the railroad riders riding around and how that was such a rough environment. Um, so I thought it was really interesting that her dad didn't want her to stay there. And then he thought the best thing was to grow roots. Um, but he didn't want to remain, um, he wanted to remain rootless yes. himself. And you find out why over the course of the book, why he doesn't want to have roots. But I think that Abilene kind of helps him see why it is important to have a community of people to support you and help you. Did they ever say what happened to her mom? They don't ever say, um, or do they? She might have died in childbirth, now that I think about it. I mean, the statistically very possible. Very possible. One, so one other thing that I think is worth mentioning is that this book is based off of true events, loosely based off of her grandparents who lived in Kansas. And then really fascinatingly, in the back after the book ends, there's this section, and I don't remember what it's called, but it breaks down with headers the different historical events that are mentioned in the book. So there's a section about train hoppers and there's one about the great depression and about, I think there's one about maybe about the war and about 
just like a lot of the historical elements that are mentioned in there, she gives little blurbs about so your kid can read about it at the end or, you know, to kind of further research or discussion. And then she also has a paragraph in the afterword about her grandparents and kind of why she wrote the story and what she changed and what she didn't change. So it's also a great way to kind of demystify the writing process for for kids and to kind of show them, hey, you know, she took these true events and created a fictional narrative to kind of explain them to a wider audience. I I really like how she included that. So you can either make a teachable moment or if you're just an inquisitive kid, you can learn more about the events that, you know, surrounded the actual story. Right, exactly. And so it's a great stepping stone to, I think, to take your kids to the library and get them books about the Dust Bowl or about, you know, any of the other events mentioned there. Um, I, I really appreciated that. You know, I'm not a teacher, but I can see an entire unit about, like, the Great Depression being built around this book. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And it's it's an easy, like, it's a really um, easy, I think it's a book that lends itself to teaching, especially with the the newspaper clippings and all of the different kind of um, visual, hands-on kind of aspects to it. Yeah, you could easily build a lesson around it. Or two, probably. So then that was... Moon Over Manifest by Claire Vanderpool. So before we move on to the next book, I'm going to take a minute to talk about Audible, one of our affiliates. If you know anything about Kendra and I, you know that we are major audiobook fiends. You're here. (laughs) We listen to them all the time. I have a commute to... (laughs) Quite literally. um, I listen to them back and forth from the office. So I listen to them back and forth on the way to the office and it really makes my commute go easier. And it actually kind of motivates me to get up and go in the mornings because I'm like, oh yeah, I want to start on that book again. (laughs) So the book that I most recently downloaded but haven't started yet on Audible is The The Princess Diarist by Carrie Fisher. And we are both, I think I can speak for you, Kendra, we are both sci-fi Star Wars nerds and were heartbroken over her recent passing and so I really wanted to get my hands on this book to kind of learn some more about her and just kind of I don't know seemed like a great book for my daily commute yeah I I actually just finished that one it is it is fantastic I didn't actually listen to it on audio but I listened to um not listened I read it and I started at 1230 and I was like, I guess I'm just going to keep reading. And I did until like 330. So I'm excited. She actually reads it. And I think her daughter (gasps) reads on it too. Are you, she reads it? I'm I'm like 95% sure. You're going to cry. Oh, I know. That's one thing I love about audiobooks is when you can actually have the author reading it because I feel like the intonation that they add just adds a whole other level of amazingness to the book itself so I love audiobooks me too so if you go to our show notes you can find a link to sign up for audible and get a free audiobook and check it out see what you think and I guess it is my turn it is your turn. Yes. Okay. So we're going to talk about Esperanza Rising by Pam Muniz Ryan So as like we talked about in last episode, this book is 
uh, loosely based on the author's grandmother's life. Uh, her grandmother immigrated to the United States and worked in um, one of these company uh, camps. Uh, but Esperanza and her mom, after a great tragedy, they lose basically everything and they get papers and go to, um, I guess, this company camp. I'm still not exactly sure what it's called, but instead of a migratory camp where you migrate to the different places, they actually stay in one place and just harvest um, for that single company. So it's supposed to be like a step up from the migratory camps, um, but she talks about the different camps they have, how they keep the different races separate. So they have uh, the Asian people in one camp, and then they have the Okies in one camp, which are the immigrants from the Dust Bowl. Uh, she gives an insight on the living conditions and what life was like on an everyday basis in these camps. And I'm sure it was, um, this is a children's book, so I'm sure there is a lot more going on, but it does give you perspective that if this, even in a children's novel, this is so hard going on, then um, it just has so much that you learn as a person, even as an adult. Um, in today's political climate, I think this would be a great book also to give to a kid to help explain certain parts of things that are being discussed, especially around immigration. So yeah, that is an overview. We're going to go jump into themes first. And we have, um, the theme is here is a lot about family. We have uh, in the beginning, this isn't a spoiler, it's like the whole catalyst in the novel is that Esperanza's father dies and he's a landholder. And so um, a different guy wants to marry her mom and her mom wants to keep the family together. So her mom would rather be poor and move to America than to actually stay and marry this guy. So she wants to keep the entire family together. Well, because we should point out that her uncle Tio wants to send her to a boarding camp or a boarding school. Right. So she, because he doesn't, I mean, obviously he just wants to marry her mom um, for, the guy just wants to marry her mom just for, you know, the land and whatever. Um, so, but during the process, her grandmother gets injured and actually hides in um, a nunnery so that she can not, you know, be, I guess, abducted or like taken for questioning or whatever by these people who are trying to find their mother when her mom leaves. So they leave and they go with actually their like groundskeeper and his son to move to the United States. Ah, it's so heartbreaking. Yeah, so it's really amazing too because one of the things that struck me the most about this book was at the very beginning, well, through most of the book, Esperanza is a brat. Like, let's just be honest. She's a bit spoiled. Um, yeah. Yeah, she she's entitled, and she actually has a crush on Miguel, the housekeeper's son. But then she tells him one day, like, oh, I can never marry you because you're just a, like, you're just the son of a housekeeper and, you know, my father owns land. And so she kind of has this entitled attitude throughout the entire story. But then by the time we come around to the end, she really comes to realize that people are people <laughs> regardless. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of like, the class difference is also like, besides the fact that she's moving to a different country and um, she doesn't know English, like she has all of the different people that she has. So like there's another little girl there that's like, were you really a princess and were you really all this stuff? And she finally realizes how Miguel might actually see her as like a spoiled, entitled little creature and she hates it. And she's really angry at the little girl for mentioning. Yeah. 
for mentioning that. And so you see like how she does that. And also when she starts like physical work, like she doesn't know how to sweep or take care of children or anything. And so it's a really harsh learning curve for her. And I think one thing that this book shows really well is I think often race and class issues are often couched as being binaries. So you're either or. And I feel like one thing that this story does exceptionally well is showing that these kinds of conflicts are multi-level, multi-faceted. It's not just us and them because like, so even in the Mexican migrants, you have the upper class land holding people and then the poor people who didn't own land. And then you have like the white farm owners and in California. And then you have these people from Oklahoma who are getting treated better than the people from Mexico, but not as well as the farm owner. So it's like very multi-leveled and a really difficult thing to explain, but it's so clearly described in this book. And I appreciate how they use, um, they're sort of like a subplot, but not, not really is that they, a lot of the Mexican workers want to strike and by striking, um, then they would be freezing to work. But the problem is that there are all these people from Oklahoma during the great depression would just take their spots. So they really wouldn't actually be achieving anything. And so they're really worried about if they don't strike, like they're hostile from their, you know, fellow Mexicans who are like, well, you're portraying us. But then if they do strike, they might lose their jobs and not be able to feed their family. So it is really interesting how she, um, the author humanizes that by there's this one character. She's really like gung ho for the strike and everything. And she seems like really harsh towards Esperanza. Um, understandably so if you had grown up in the camp environment versus Esperanza, who's like, you know, a princess, uh, but it also humanizes her that humanizes, um, the character that wants to strike because she is actually helping people feed their families if they strike and, you know, they have no food. Well, she's like, well, I will try to take care of you. And it shows a lot of leadership on her part. And in the 1930s, I mean, that's a big step. That's one thing that stood out to me too is, yeah, I, that it is in the 1930s. Like, I think that's the thing that is important to put into context is that I think this is like late 20s, early 30s or 20s, 30s, somewhere in that area. Um, I guess they're both our books are set in the Great Depression slash Dust Bowl era. Yeah, I guess they are. That was completely unintentional. Another happy accident. Um, but the fact that so women at this time, so her mother doesn't have any rights. And that's one of the problems is that even though how they get in the problem to begin with is that Esperanza's father gave the house and the vineyards to Esperanza and her mother. But because she's a woman, she cannot own land. So he has to will the land to his brother. And then his brother's the one who is a complete jerk and horrible person. And so her mother, who's like this really cultured, refined, upper-class woman, is really willing to do the work and get her hands dirty to provide for her family, which is just striking and incredible. Which, And even in 
you know, the camps that it's a family camp, which had better conditions, but it was registered by male head of household. Right. So, be- so because Esperanza and her mother didn't have a male head of household, um, they had to have a friend do that. And they actually had to rearrange sleeping stuff so that uh, Miguel and Esperanza weren't sleeping in the same house because that would still be inappropriate. So they were able to register for another house or actually just a tiny like shack like room. But it was just so com- much. It was so much more complicated because a woman didn't have any rights as an individual. There's a lot of really incredible women in this book. Even her abuela is an amazing woman. She's kind of the brains of the organization, as it were. Yeah. there's And there's so much, like, even, like, little details, like, how the chapters are sorted by what is being harvested. And they describe, like, how the things were harvested and I really like those details, like those historical details. Like I haven't checked to make sure that they're historically accurate, but I, I assume that she's done her research and listened, the author listened to her grandmother on how these things are, were done and, and so on. So I really found that interesting that you actually get these important details that make this living situation real for readers. I would recommend for this one the audiobook. I actually listened to the audiobook. And the version that I had, I think it's from... Scholastic, the same people who published it, a woman who speaks Spanish reads it, and so her accents are beautiful, and she pronounces the words flawlessly. So um, I think it's especially helpful for young readers to learn early on how to pronounce some of these words that they wouldn't be familiar with. And I think it's also very helpful for like empathy and awareness and so many different things. And I think we've actually just given everyone like a wonderful little hist- you know, historical fiction unit for middle readers now. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> the quincidences on the show are probably just, they just, they just make everything. <laughs> yes, they're wonderful. And just to reiterate too, I think that both of these books, because they deal with immigrants and immigrants living in, a, in small towns, um, very appropriate for the current political things going on. Um, and one thing, I I really appreciate the fact that this book starts out with them, Esperanza and her family, as they were in Mexico. And you kind of see like how much they gave up to actually come to America. And I don't think that that's a narrative that's often told, or at least for me, it wasn't often told to me in my childhood. So I think just to really teach kids early on that a lot of the people who come here really give up careers and families and land and who knows what else when they come here. And it's just a really good reminder for everybody. So that is Esperanza Rising by Pam Munez Ryan. And that is our last book for this episode on Middle Readers. That went fast. It did. Those are just two great books to talk about. Yeah, and if anyone is looking for additional middle reader recommendations, uh, Kendra especially, (laughs) I'm going to volunteer you. (laughs) I'm here. I'm ready. But Kendra and I are both willing to offer recommendations for other books. If you're looking for a specific type of middle reader, we are more than happy to offer those. Yes. And we will, as usual, be coming out with um, more suggestions for further reading next week on our brand new website that we still love and adore and want to share with everyone. I'm biased, but I think it's beautiful. So go check out that blog. 
And uh, that's it. So if you love The Reading Woman and you want to help support us, please review or and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. That helps other people find us, and we really appreciate it. We really do. It makes our day when we get a new comment. It does. We share. We immediately we like do. text each other. Did you see? <laughs> people like us. It's a miracle. <laughs> uh, so then be sure to join us next time. We will be talking in March, which is crazy, about nonfiction books. Very, very excited. Um, we have several books queued up for that already, which we are both brimming with excitement to talk about. So don't miss those episodes. They will be coming your way in March. And meanwhile, you can find The Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and Litzy. And I think that's everywhere. And we are always posting book recommendations and reader photos and news and all kinds of things. And you can, if you want to see photos of our fur children, you can follow me, Autumn Privet, on Twitter and Instagram at Autumn Privet and Kendra at Katie Winchester. And thank you so much for listening, and we will be back in a few weeks. Talk to you guys. Bye. Bye.